It was in 1926. Abe Saperstein wound up owning a place called the Savoy Ballroom. He was a businessman there in Chicago. He wanted to find some way to advertise it and try to drum up business. And so what he did was he actually went out and got five African-American athletes, great athletes, who played basketball. And he made them the Savoy Five, brought them together so that they could put on um, exhibition games with other teams and try to make it inspiring and exciting and fun. And that's exactly what happened. He brought them together. They began to play. They were very inspiring. And 20 years later, by 1946, this group had already played more than a thousand exhibition games. They had developed this huge following from coast to coast and been on the cover of Time magazine. They were making it big. And so it was they continued to expand with more and more players and more and more publicity. However, along the way, they changed the name from the Savoy Five to the Harlem Globetrotters, in spite of the fact that everyone on the team was from Chicago. But they were starting to travel literally around the world. And this was a time when racism was such a problem in America. There was such a divide because of race. And when the Harlem Globetrotters came to play... They really helped to break those barriers down. They always put a smile on your face. They made you laugh. They made you feel good to be there. They literally became a positive agent of social change. And as I said, they were good. Fascinating thing is the NBA, the National Basketball Association, didn't get created until 1946. You already had the Harlem Globetrotters playing and doing so well. And when the NBA got created, the Harlem Globetrotters could beat just about any NBA team. In fact, they signed, the uh, Harlem Globetrotters signed this pretty good basketball player named Wilt Chamberlain. He played with them for a year before he'd be eligible to sign in the NBA. And years later, when Wilt Chamberlain was, after the end of his career and was getting close to death, it turned out that they were talking to him and they said, who is the greatest player you've ever played with? They thought he'd say, Dr. J, someone like that. And instead they said, Meadowlark Lemon. Meadowlark Lemon, what an amazing basketball player. He joined the Harlem Globetrotters in 1954. He had had an interesting life trying to grow up. Wilmington, North Carolina, grew up extremely poor. And it said that he got a coat hanger and made it to the shape of a basket. He got an onion sack and made it the net. He and his friends played with a a, a can of carnation milk. That was the ball. And they would learn to pass and shoot. And he got really good at the game. Graduated from high school. He went into the army. He was stationed in Austria when the Harlem Globetrotters were on tour and came to Austria. And there he got to see them play. He got to meet them. He asked to play with them. They let him come and have an afternoon of playing with them and was so good, they let him try out and he joined the team. Anybody who watched the Harlem Globetrotters in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, you saw Meadowlark Lemon. What an amazing guy. Again, a man who made you smile. 
whether he took the bucket that was going to be water and throw it on you that turned out to be paper most of the time. (laughs) Or whether he was running that and grabbing the opponent's uh, shorts and yanking them down while they're playing. No, he made you laugh. And he was so good. He wound up having a 76% free throw shooting average. Who in the NBA has a 76% free throw shooting average? He said, look, these things are free. You're supposed to make them. And make his free throws, he did. He was an incredible guy. But when he retired, he became an ordained Christian minister. And for decades, that's what he actually did. He was a minister. He and his wife created the Meadowlark Lemon Ministries. And it focused a whole lot on children and schools and going around the country. And you can only imagine, when he showed up in a school, man, here was a hero who arrived. The kids would flock. And he had a very basic message. The message that he said to these kids in school was, treat others the way you want to be treated. Remember, it's cool to be kind. You're either going to be a part of the problem or a part of the solution. If you want to be a part of the solution, you have to be kind. This morning, I want to continue on with this sermon series, The Kindness Project. Because you and I have agreed that during this year, our focus is going to wind up being kind. Hearing how Jesus had said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this all people will know you're my disciple if you have love for one another. So from a very fundamental, pragmatic place, we've said we're going to take time each day to remember that we are loved by Christ. And because we're loved by Christ, we're going to go out and love others and be kind. That's what we're going to choose to do. I believe it's how you and I become a part of the solution and not the problem. By being those who go out and share God's love and really help to bring hope to the world. One of the great kindness passages in the Bible is what we read this morning for our scripture lesson. It was a scripture, a story about Elijah. Elijah was one of the great prophets in the Bible, one of the towering figures in the Hebrew scripture. You remember when Jesus went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, the two people he wound up seeing there, Moses and Elijah. Yes, Elijah was so important in the history of Israel. He lived at a time when Ahab was the king of Israel. And Ahab married Jezebel. She was a foreigner. And Jezebel brought in all these foreign gods. They were the gods of Baal. And she wanted Israel to worship the gods of Baal. And of course, here you had um, Ahab trying to say, well, how do I balance this between my wife and the prophet Elijah? We're going to worship Yahweh. It led to great conflicts. That would wind up being the struggle at the time. Our story was about how there was a great drought going on in Israel. The drought was such that the rain had stopped falling, and if the rain doesn't fall, then the crops don't grow. And if the crops don't grow, there's a famine. And that's what was happening. People were running out of water and food, grain. 
the meal to make bread. And so it was that God came to Elijah and told him to go to a city. And he went to this city, and when he got there, there he found a widow. She had a son. She was outside the gates, and she was collecting sticks. And he came up and said, would you give me something to drink? She said, yes. He said, would you give me something to eat? And she said, I'm gathering these sticks so I can make a fire and I'm going to cook the last bit of meal that we have with the last bit of oil that I have and then my son and I will die. But yes, come home. I'll give you something to drink. I will give you something to eat. And so Elijah goes home with the widow and when he gets home with the widow, then she makes the bread and Elijah says to her, Your meal will not run dry, and your oil will not run out until the Lord makes it rain upon the plains of Israel again. Not too many days go by. Elijah stays. She continues to feed all of the household. They got up the next morning, and the meal was still there, and there was more oil, and they kept fixing the bread, and there was more oil, and there was more meal. And then one day the son grows sick and suddenly dies. And this widow is distraught, her only child, a widow, her son is dead. And it's Elijah who goes upstairs and begs and prays to God and says, restore this child. And sure enough, he is restored. He comes back to life. And Elijah brings the boy downstairs and gives him back to his mother. And she knows such joy. Now, scholars have said, this story of Elijah and the widow continued to be told and told for centuries because there's some very important theological messages being given here. It's more than just a story of what happens. It was saying to the people of Israel then and to you and me now, when you stop worshiping God, when you get lost and you go chasing other things, there's a famine. You're going to feel empty and hungry and you're not satisfied. You may be afraid that there isn't enough for you, for others. But what you discover is if you stay grounded in your faith in the Lord and you choose to share, to be kind with what you have, then isn't it amazing there's always enough? It never runs dry. And if you choose to be kind, then God can use your acts of kindness to restore life, even the life of a child. There's an important message in the story, not only for the people of Israel, but for all of us today. For we are reminded, if we're going to be a part of the solution instead of the problem, and that really begins when we choose to share God's love and bring hope in the world by being kind. That's what I want us to think about this morning. And I just want two things I want us to to go away thinking about. One, I think you become a part of the solution when you get in the habit of acknowledging the presence of the people around you. You acknowledge the presence of a human being, even though they may look different or be different or need something from you, you see them. You see them as a child of God. I mean, you think about the tendencies you and I have because we live in an urban area. We live in a city. 
you know, we go get on an elevator, for instance. That's a small place. You get on an elevator full of people, and what's the first thing you do? You look up at the numbers. We don't make eye contact with the rest of the people in the elevator. No, we look at the numbers. Or we look at the floor. We will stand there in silence. We have a way of ignoring the people who are around us. They're strangers. We don't know them. We don't acknowledge that they exist. You walk down the hall. You may be walking down a hall and there's just you walking one way and a person coming the other way. And as you get closer, what do you do? You look off to the side. You look down at your shoes so you don't have to make eye contact. We can totally ignore the existence of the other person. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong about that except that you and I learn how to insulate ourselves. We learn how we can become very focused on who we are and insulated in our world, and I become very comfortable ignoring, not acknowledging the presence of those who are around me. And when we get in the habit of doing that, then we don't see other people who are in need and we fail to be kind. You know, I've been telling you about Jimmy Wayne. I told you about him a couple of weeks ago. He's a fascinating guy. He's a, a country music singer, very successful. He's written a couple of New York Times best-selling books. He's had one of his books made into a movie for TV. One of the things I think is interesting about him is how he grew up. I mean, he, he too grew up in North Carolina with a very dysfunctional family. His father deserted the family when he was just a boy. His mother got mixed up in drugs and alcohol and all kinds of bad people. It turned out when he was um, all of uh, 13 years old, one night they drove, she and her boyfriend drove to a bus station. It was 1 a.m. They forced him to get out of the car and they drove off. He said, that was a turning point in my life. From then on, I was on my own. I was on the streets. He got involved with group homes and foster care. But then he grew up a little older and he aged out of foster care. And suddenly as a teenager at 16 years old, he's back on the streets again with no one. Thank goodness there was B. Costner and her husband Russell who took him in. Total strangers. Got to know him. Took him in. And he was able to graduate high school go on and graduate college. And when he graduated college, decided to head to Nashville and pursue his dream. And now he's become a, a country star. But Jimmy's never forgotten what it was like to be that homeless teenager and how so many people didn't acknowledge you even existed. They didn't see you. And so he made a, a several years ago that walk from Nashville to Phoenix, about 1,300 miles. He wanted to walk it and try to draw attention, press conferences, day after day, about the need of all the homeless kids, the homeless children in America that you and I don't see and think about. And yet he was still giving concerts, and so what he would do is he would walk and walk day after day, and then it'd come time for a concert, and he'd make sure he knew where he stopped. They'd pick him up, fly him back to Nashville. He'd give his concert, they'd fly him back, and he'd pick up the walk. And he said, I, I really did kind of look like a homeless person when I did my walking. 
And he talked about one of those days when he'd come back from a concert and he was going to start his walk and he came up to a stoplight and a Jeep pulled up beside him and one of his songs was playing on the radio. And he said, I stand there at the stoplight and I'm hearing my song playing on the radio and the driver of the Jeep was just kind of looking around but never acknowledged that I existed. A day before I was on a stage with thousands of cheering and adoring fans and now because I look like a homeless person walking on the street I was totally ignored. I didn't exist. And so it was that he decided to write a song entitled Paper Angels. He decided to write the song Paper Angels because when he was a boy growing up the Salvation Army every year had a Christmas tree and had paper angels on it. And they'd take these paper angels and they'd write the name of a kid and what he wanted for Christmas and anyone could come by, take the angel, go out and buy the present and bring it back. And he said when he was a boy growing up, he had talked with his social worker who wanted to put him a paper angel on the tree for him and he asked for a guitar. And somebody picked it up and bought a guitar. And he said, it changed my life. The house I own, the car I drive, the clothes on my back are because somebody saw and bought that guitar for me. So one day he was at a mall at Christmas time and he was on the second floor and he looked down and there was the tree, the angel tree that the Salvation Army had up, the paper angel tree, and all these people were walking by and nobody was stopping. And he thought, Don't they see? Don't they know what each of these paper angels represents? And so he wrote a song about it. When an album was about to come out, the producer said, we're going to cut that song. And he said, you can't. He went back and argued with them. Please, you can't. It means so much to me. And so they chose to leave it on. And it became one of his biggest hits. And he wrote a novel by the same name and it made the New York Times bestseller list and then it was turned into a, a TV for made movie. Why does he do it? He says all the time, they blessed me. It's now time for me to make sure I give back. That I want to help other people see all those other people we ignore I want to call it to their attention. And it's how he becomes a part of the solution rather than the problem. For you and for me, it's about understanding that we have been loved by Christ and because we've been loved by Christ, we're going to go out and love others. We open our eyes to see the need of others, to acknowledge their existence I think of the woman outside of the the walls picking up the sticks and she looks up and here comes this man and I can't help but think in her mind she must have said, oh brother, what's he going to want? And when he came up and he said, can you give me a drink of water? She could have just acted like she didn't hear and gone on. It's all because she acknowledged his presence and his need and chose to respond that the miracle began to happen, that there would be enough meal and oil to continue to feed them all. It's supposed to be the message of the Scripture. 
when we acknowledge the existence of others and see the need and we choose to be kind, God will use it. There's enough for us all. Secondly, in order to be a part of the solution, I believe it's so important that we remember our values, that we remember the things that are the most important. It is so easy in life to suddenly be afraid, afraid we don't have enough, afraid that others are going to need too much, afraid we don't control the future. And when you become afraid, you lose your sense of values. You forget what is most important. I got to say, right now I'm I'm struggling a little with all the campaigns that are going on in, in our country as we try to decide on our next president. You know, I feel strong in my job is not to tell you who to vote for or not vote for. No, I believe that's very important for you to do in whatever party. But there's one thing I do want to ask you. Listen. Listen clearly to the things that get said and the programs that are proposed. Because I think some things are being said that really go against our fundamental values. Values as Christians. Values as Americans. I worry that right now the campaign seems to be very divisive in our country, divisive along racial lines, that rather than bringing us together, it seems to be heightening the tension of races, religions. It becomes an anti-campaign, anti-immigrants, anti-Muslims. We forget some of our fundamental values that everybody is a child of God, that we believe in the right of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that everybody has that right. Not just people who are like me. I think there's great struggles that are going on and you need to pay attention so that we don't forget our values and the things that are the most important to us. That's really what was going on with Elijah at this point. If we go on and read the story, remember I told you that Elijah was struggling He was struggling because you had a Jezebel bringing in all the prophets of Baal and he's trying to get everybody to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so you had this tension going on. And he leaves right after this woman and healing her son, raising him from the dead. He goes to Mount Carmel and there he confronts Ahab, the king, as well as 450 prophets of Baal and says, we're going to have a contest up here and decide who is God. Is it Baal? Or is it Yahweh? Follow the one. You can't go limping between the two. Decide today who you will follow. So they have the contest. And in the end, Yahweh, Elijah wins. And suddenly all the people are hollering, Elijah, Elijah. The word Eli is God. God is my God. Yah is for Yahweh. Yahweh is the Lord. Yahweh is my God. And it wasn't his name. as a play on that, Elijah, that everybody, they, oh, they're hollering Elijah. And they're actually hollering, uh, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. To make a choice. What are your values? What's most important to you? Who will you follow? 
That's what Elijah said. You got to decide if we're going to be a part of the solution rather than a part of the problem. Right now, as I was working on this sermon, I got to tell you, I've been also having a fun time watching about the Super Bowl. You know how much I love football. You know how much I love sports. And so I've been having a good time. And I'm excited about this one because, well, I cheer for the Denver Broncos. You know, I've cheered for the Broncos for decades. You know, all the way back there, I'm with uh, I'm all the different quarterbacks down through the, these years. And I certainly love Peyton Manning. And so no offense to any other team, but I've followed Denver for years and years. So I'm actually very excited about that. And it is a free country. And if you want to choose for another team, that's your business. But, <laughs> but I am telling you this time, which is the right team to cheer for. So, <laughs> but as I'm watching all the buildup and the things that are going on, it should be a, a, a great game. And, and I was thinking about Peyton Manning. Suddenly I got to thinking about how some of these things were all kind of coming together. And the fact that Peyton Manning's father, Archie Manning, his name is Elisha Archibald Manning. That's why he goes by Archie. (laughs) Elisha, you remember, is the prophet who takes over after Elijah. That Elijah will throw his mantle on his young protege, Elisha, and he becomes the next great prophet to take off after Elijah. Well, you have Elisha, Archibald Manning, and he grew up in a very strong religious home. He won awards for years of going and never missing a Sunday in Sunday school. Now, Archie was certainly raised in a very strong Christian faith, and he did the same thing with his three sons, with Cooper and with Peyton and then with Eli. And the last one's named Eli. We just were talking about God, my God. You got to look at the family and say, okay, there's got to be a little bit of religion issue going on here. This must be something important to them. And it is. Well, Eli is the youngest. Peyton's four years older than him. And when Peyton had wound up graduating from college, he went to Tennessee, a great career. He was drafted number one into the NFL. He was then because he was four years younger, that you had Eli, who is now heading off to college, and he's going to go to Ole Miss, just like his father Archie did. And so he went off to Ole Miss. His brother now is drafted number one in the NFL, had had this super career. Everybody has high expectations for him. He's going to come back and turn Ole Miss around. He will be great. That's a lot of pressure. I mean, here you're living with the Manning name. Your father had been a quarterback in the NFL. Now your brother... And he gets off to Ole Miss, and now he's free and feeling all this. And the first thing he does is Eli gets arrested. He got arrested for public intoxication. And so he called home the next day after he spent the night in jail and told his father. And I saw the interview, and I loved it where his father, Archie, said, I think I handled it pretty well. At least I didn't holler and scream at him. No, what he did was he asked him, Have you forgotten your values? It was the coach that got him back and said, I I want you to ask, what's important to you? What's important to you? Why are you here? Do you want to become uh, all SEC? Do you want to wind up being all American? Do you want to be the best football player in the history of Ole Miss? Why are you here? What's important to you? 
Don't answer me. Go think about it. And Eli said he went away and this was where the page was turned in his life. For he went away and started thinking about what's important to me. What are my values? And he came back to the coach and said, I want to be the greatest football player in the history of Ole Miss. He found himself grounded. And so he began to play. Four years later, when he graduated from Ole Miss, he would have broken 57 records in the record book, most of which had been set by his father. And his senior year, he would lead Ole Miss back to a bowl game, the Cotton Bowl, to play on New Year's Day, something Ole Miss hadn't done in a long time. And they won. Does anybody know who they beat that day? (laughs) Yeah, it was Oklahoma State University. Yeah. No, he led Ole Miss back to greatness. What I was fascinated by was, as I've been listening this week, they're coming out with the results of the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award. Every team gets to lift up one person as their nominee for for, um, uh, their person of the year. And the New York Giants have lifted up Eli Manning. In fact, he's been listed up for about the last decade every year. They've now narrowed it down to three from all the teams, and they're going to wind up announcing the winner this Saturday night. And Eli is one of the final three has been chosen. Why? It's, well, it's because he and his wife, Abby, started looking around, and they saw Mississippi, their home state, and how it only had one children's hospital. And they thought of all the children who didn't have access to, to health care, and so they started the Eli and Abby Medical Clinics for children all across the state. And then they started a foundation to raise more money for the children's hospital to provide care for all the children who needed it and couldn't afford it, which was so many. And because of all the work that they're doing with the children, seeing the need, that's why he's been nominated to be the Walter Payton Man of the Year. He's down to three. I think he's already won. Because... He was able to look at his life and say, what's most important? It really does need to be football with my values. And when he pursued his dream with the things that were his values, it can mean you achieve success and you have wealth and you still see those that other people do not see, those that can be ignored, and you reach out to bless them. It's how you become a part of the solution instead of the problem. And so it is for you and me. I believe the story calls us to take time to think, what are our values? As the disciples of Jesus Christ, what are our values? What is most important? And it opens our eyes so that we acknowledge the other human beings around us. We see the needs of others. And so it is we choose to be kind. We share God's love and bring hope to the world, especially to the children. This week, what I want you to think about as you go out to be kind, as you find the things you want to do each day, this week, 
make sure that you do at least one kind thing for a child. You might set a high bar and try every day, but at least once. This week, make sure that your kindness is for a child, where you acknowledge them, you see them, you listen to them, you hear their needs. It's how you and I become a part of the solution instead of the problem. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.